Welcome to the Shaping Champions podcast, a platform for discussion and exploration into what it takes to be a champion in life. We speak to athletes, entertainers, business people, and everyone in between about their journey and experiences, discovering the key ingredients needed to become successful at whatever it is you do. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Shaping Champions Podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Shaping Champions Podcast with me, Jimmy Davis, where we talk to professionals across the fields of entertainment, sport and business about what it takes to shape present and future champions. My guest today is the CEO of the Community Interest Company Changes UK, an organization that he founded which helps people in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction to turn their lives around. He's faced his own battles with addiction, but has now been in recovery and abstinent from narcotics and alcohol for almost 20 years. Welcome to the show, Steve Dixon. Hi, Jimmy. Good to be here, mate. Thank you so much for coming on, Steve. Really appreciate you being here. Now, listeners of the show might find it a little confusing that I'm speaking to someone with your background and in your line of work on a podcast called Shaping Champions. But for me, the reason I've invited you on, Steve, is because, as far as I'm concerned, people that have been to really dark places through substance abuse or alcohol abuse, they too are real champions because the odds are against you. Often people in those positions have lost everything, both externally and internally, are sometimes thrown onto the scrap heap of life and face one of the toughest challenges that anyone can ever face. So I'd love to kick things off by asking you, what does that mean to you, Steve, to be a champion? Uh, well, I mean, to be, to be a champion, I mean, I have to think about what does that word mean? What is a champion? Like excluding myself, because I do find it hard to see myself as a champion. When I think about, you know, a champion is someone who's scoring the winning goal at Wembley or someone, you know, that you kind of look up to or aspire to be, you know, someone who's who's winning. Um, and, and often, I suppose, that word would make me think about the people in the world who are, you know, a lot of pioneers or, or leading in, usually in the world of sports would be in my mind. Because <clears throat> champion is kind of like winning a game. They're the champions, or a champion is a person who, who is within the team, as that. But also, you know, when you did do the description about people uh, coming through, you know, through dark, out of dark times and into recovery with the odds against them, you know, it did make me think. Then, like, actually, you know, like people who, who I know loads of champions who are in recovery, and, and I would definitely. Uh, call them champions because what they've overcome, um, you know, has just been been amazing. And like, you know, and thinking about my own journey is that I suppose you know, with a champion being a winner, I'm definitely winning that battle. Uh, where where or I wouldn't say destiny had me kind of dying in addiction, but it was looking that way for a long time. I didn't know no way out, so I'm definitely winning that battle and living, you know, my life to the full and, you know, with life with purpose and, and love and happiness and, you know, hopes and dreams and stuff. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, I guess that's what I'm getting at in some ways, you know, that we often look at or we associate that word champion with something external. Yeah. Whereas internally, you can be a champion of mm. your own life, can't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I agree with that. Yeah, like, you know, because I suppose, like, be, be, being a pioneer, like, being in being in recovery, I was introduced to, like, a whole world that I never knew about, you know, so many champions of life that are, you know, like, inspiring, inspired me to, like, think, bloody hell, imagine I could live this life. Because when I was growing up as a kid, I always thought there was something special for me. You know, at the same time, I felt like I was worse than everyone else a lot of the time. But there was always a part of me that always had hopes and dreams that there's something special out there for me. You know, and and you know, and and, and I met I met a lot of people along the way, I suppose, in my childhood, but never really felt felt that I deserved it or I was good enough to to achieve those things until I found myself in recovery. Definitely want to come back to that at some part of the, the conversation about this idea of not feeling enough, you know. Um, but 
could we just sort of rewind a bit and could you give us a, a, a sense of your journey, Steve, in, you know, with addiction? So where did it start? Um, could you sort of set the scene for us a little bit? <clears throat> yeah, well, I suppose it, it, goes, it goes way back for me. And I, and I want to say this to anyone that is listening to this podcast or knows of someone who's stuck in addiction is, uh, is uh, if, if I can change the narrative a little bit for them, um, it might give hope to somebody else to find recovery because I didn't know this. This is all in hindsight. It's all in retrospect. I've done a lot of work around trauma, you know, um, but I didn't never understand or knew that my addictive behaviours or my addiction came from trauma. And trauma's all relative. I mean, you know, you, you know people, I know people who've had things happen to them, you know, like, like being dismissed by, by a parent when they've won something or, you know, it could be something, something that could seem insignificant to, to somebody else, but to that child, it was significant that made them feel that they're not good enough, they're not loved, they're not, you know, they don't, they're not wanted. Uh, and the only place they can take that is internal. And, and you know, m my experience was there was a lot of violence. Um, you know, I suffered at the hands of a lot of violence as a kid. It was quite scary to get things wrong. Um, and I learned to kind of try and stay out of trouble and manipulate. But, you know, I was always in trouble. So I spent a lot of my childhood in trouble, in fear of getting, you know, physically assaulted. Um, and then, you know, I did suffer some sexual abuse when I was like nine years old. And I, I, I never understood that that really happened to me. I kind of really pushed that down um, like it didn't happen. And then, you know, as I got older, as soon as I found substances, it just took that pain away. And I felt okay with the world again. I felt safe. I felt warm. I felt, you know, that I could be together with other people. I'd found a tribe of people where I felt okay. And, uh, and, and that's where that journey of, of actually using substances began, was then the first time I ever picked up that feeling of just uh, feeling free started there. And I suppose, you know, and that, that just, it, I never got, you know, I was always chasing that feeling for years and years and years. Um, and the things I said I'd never do, I never wanted to do. I said, I'd never take this. I said, I'd never do that. I didn't want to do that, but the want to feel okay in the world was bigger than the want not to do that. So, you know, I compromised myself again and again and again and again just to feel okay, just to fit in, just to be loved, to be accepted, to be wanted, you know, um, and ended up becoming someone that I just despised. And at, at what point do you go from, right, I'm not doing that, to, oh, let me just try that? Let me give it a try. Then was it was it that sense of uh, or urge to um, yeah, like you, you described it to want to feel okay. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it was um, it was an organic transition f from one to the other. You know, like I mean, it began for me early on drinking and smoking weed and f and feeling okay. We was all doing that. It didn't seem like an issue. And then the you know we got into like football violence and it was like although it was scary, we was kind of. We was a tribe together. We felt safe together, and, and you know, and and there, there I thought I'm amongst champions. All these brave people. Maybe I can be brave, you know. And it took. I was brave when I got alcohol in me, um, and then you know the rave scene kind of saved us from all that. We all ended up taking pills, going to raves, loved each other. It was a party. Do you know what I mean? And to be honest, you know, the the it, it, it was a beautiful thing for me at that time as a troubled kid, really, to find myself, you know, like feeling like you know real love and connection to other people um, and I never wanted to give that away but I suppose you know over time I ended up psychotic and then you know just transitioning through through my journey uh, to find that feeling again you know and like you know as I said compromising taking different drugs things I'd, I said I'd never do. So you've mentioned that word a couple of times now tribe that for the, the people that you've met throughout your journey uh, in recovery do you, get, do you get the sense that they were looking for the same thing? Is that what people were searching for? Belonging to yeah. something? It's a real, real common theme. I mean, like, you know, lots of people, you know, come through addiction, into recovery. Their trauma's different. Their stories are different. They come from different backgrounds. You know, like, addiction doesn't discriminate. You know, it's an, it has a, it's an equal opportunity destroyer. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you're from or what you've got. You know, if you've got it and you've got that feeling, that sense of kind of real 
senses, you know, like low self-esteem, low self-worth, you know, a desire to fit in. You will compromise that as a young kid growing up. Mm. As soon as you hit substances, you're never going to let that go. There's a difference between, you know, like I thought I had a drug problem, you know, and I was always stopping taking drugs, but then I would take another little bit, you know, or take something else. I was always trying to navigate my way because I didn't know no other way. I thought I had a drug problem. I didn't understand that I had a, I, I suffered with addiction, which is an illness, mm. you know. And since, since you know, since I found that found that out, I was relieved. I've, I've been looking for the way out of that for like at least five six years before I managed to get clean. So when you make that differentiation then between a drug pub problem and addiction, does that mean that you could apply the addiction to anything in life? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you find that a lot, you know, because the re the recovery is a process. <clears throat> you know, I mean, if, if all I needed was to just stop using, all I'd need is, is a toilet just to get sick and just hang around that for a few days and then, you know, I'd live happily ever after. You know, what happens is, is that... Drugs and alcohol served a purpose for me. You know, like I said before, they gave me that sense of peace initially. They gave me that freedom from self, freedom from self-hatred, freedom from fear, f freedom from, like, fear of not being enough and not fitting in. So, so you know, I didn't heal internally while I was taking drugs. Like, that stuff didn't go away. So, so when I did stop taking drugs, I went right back to that nine-year-old that was frightened to death of being judged, not being enough. You know, like people talking about me, like I was an absolute wreck. And that's why before I'd done that, I'd always return to using again because I, could, I couldn't stand that for too long. But this time I found myself in a world, you know, a, a tribe, like I said earlier, of people who had been where I'd been understood how I was feeling and how I was thinking. And like, you know, it kept reminding me, like, it will get better. You're like, this is normal. You're not different. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a bad person. You know, you, you're a sick person. You know, and we're going to help you get better. Do you know what I mean? And I needed that. Mm. So how do you go about then facing that challenge of feeling like that nine-year-old and having to take that sort of first step? Was it largely due to the, that support network that you referenced there? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Undoubtedly, it, it was essential to have that support network and and this and this is a reality jimmy is that that i grew up from a nine-year-old you know i would just turn 29 but i was emotionally like a nine-year-old you know i didn't know how to challenge people i didn't know how to look after myself i didn't know how to have courageous conversations you know i, I i'm petrified of conflict so like you know where i could have a challenging conversation or should have i would just keep it to myself bottle it up bottle it up bottle it up and then i'd end up exploding like having a tantrum and not wrecking everything do you know what i mean like i didn't know i had no you know my emotional awareness or, or capacity was just non-existent so you know, with people around me and seeing other people do that stuff, you know, have real brave conversations and let other people know about how they feel was like a revelation to me. No, no one in my family, especially men, ever spoke about how they felt. If you ever spoke about, you know, my dad used to say to me, you know, like, I'll give you something to cry about. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. that, that, like, if you feel you're weak, there's something wrong with you. You would never do that. It would be, it'd be just so embarrassing to say, I'm really feeling sensitive today. <laughs> you would just never do that. You know, and what you said to me really hurt my feelings. You know, it would just be, it'd be an alien concept to ever do that. But in recovery, seeing other people do that was so brave that, you know, you know it'd be easier to run into a pub into a fight, you know what I mean? Like, that would be easier than having these conversations. So, you know, other people supported me and inspired me to do the same. Coming out the other side of sort of beginning that process, discovering this uh, sort of, I guess, world of emotional awareness, emotional intelligence, how much did you then start to recognise that people perhaps lack that? in the normal world, in the wider mm, world? Yeah. Did, was that something that you, you know, you started to really recognise? Yeah, to totally. Mm. So, because I suppose we're conditioned, you know, through our family systems, through communities, through growing up, through media, um, that, you know, it's to be successful and, you know, relating to this topic about being a champion, when you think about that, is somebody who's got the big car, got the big house, got the big family, you know, got loads of money around them. Um, 
and they're champions where the reality is a lot of people who have that stuff are still seeking peace, mm -hmm. still seeking like the real sense of joy. You know, and and, I, and my dad was an example of that. My dad was a good man, and he worked so hard, and he come from nothing, and he done well in his business. But he was always chasing, chasing, chasing. We didn't get much time with him because he had to work, 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 even weekends, and and he never, you know, like he saw climbing this hill, and you think when you get to the top, it's gonna be amazing. All my, you know, it's gonna just, but I'm just gonna feel, I don't know just complete joy and, and success but you never get to the top of the hill you know and sometimes you've got to sit down on the hill and have a look at how far you've come and look how beautiful it is you know look, look you was down there and now you're up here and like you know my dad never had the opportunity to do that so seeing that in other people and in my own family system as well uh, was quite sad you know and it's hard it's hard it's difficult to change that um, and, and I think the sad reality or in my experience, the only people who've been able to change that are people who've been to the utter desperation where, where they can bounce into like something completely new, completely vulnerable. You know, like it takes something to be able to like take on that challenge and start looking internally rather than externally. So where did that point come for you? Like what was the turning point and, 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 and how dark did it get? Well, when I first got when I first got off drugs um, and alcohol, I won't I won't need to say that again. But I just want to say that for me anyway, you know, like that because because before that I used to like stop using drugs and then I would drink myself to oblivion and then I feel oh this is chaotic. I'll keep getting arrested and stuff, so I'd, I'd go back to drugs. But like the first time that I stopped that. Um, that I was just such a nervous wreck. Even though, like, you know, I'm talking about I was around these people that have been really kind and loving and supportive. And, you know, I, I still... I still didn't feel that I deserved it. And I was still on that chase. I thought I had to kind of get external things. So I was still, like, I was a million miles an hour. You know, I was pushing people away. I was, you know, instead of like selling drugs, I was selling tobacco or selling like stolen clothes or, you know, like I'd come from that lifestyle. I didn't know I had to change everything. So I was trying to like do that, but being clean and being in recovery. I've always been an entrepreneur, like in, in, my, in my using, in my drug using. Um, and I thought it was a bad thing. So I thought this is the only way I'm going to survive. And it was only till I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired, like sick and tired of being with myself. Like, no matter what I could pretend to be to other people in every given day, it was me that was putting my head on the pillow every night, like, hating myself, worried about the things that I'd said, things I'd done, worried about what people thought of me. I just didn't want to be here anymore. And that's being clean, you know. I had no escape from that, so I wasn't using that could escape briefly. I had no escape, so I just got to the end of myself. Like, I thought, what is the point of being alive? I don't, I don't want to use... I don't want to, you know, but I don't want to live either. I can't live like this. So, so that's where I entered into kind of, I need to do something different here. I need to start working on myself. I need to start getting honest about how I really feel about myself. And what, what was the next step? Um, you know, how, how did you seek help and well, where did you find that? Well, I was lucky because I was around the periphery, really, of a 12-step community. So I was, you know, I was, where I was living, because I went to Western Supermare for about 18 months in the beginning of that journey. And where I was living, you had to go to 12-step meetings, which initially was good for me because that's where I was selling my tobacco and all that sort of stuff, you know. But I was, like, hearing things. I was hearing people share their stories about, you know, that they'd come from a similar place to me and they were, you know, having their kids in their lives and going on beautiful holidays and being loved and being able to love, you know. And even though I kind of sat on the outside and watched that, I was genuinely happy for them. Like, you know, I re it was the first time, really, I really felt authentically happy for somebody else. But I still didn't believe that I deserved that or, or that, that'll happen to me, you know, but boy, keep being around that. And boy, you know, when I was talking about that time, I got to like, I didn't want to live anymore mm. um, because I was around that. And I had people, I had people that kept, were telling me like straight, that they love me, like men, you know, I had men that were hugging me in those meetings and holding me and saying, I love you, Steve, mm. you can do this, man. Even when I didn't want to be held, I did want to be old, but I didn't want to be old either because of what I'd make that mean. Do you know what I mean? 
And um, and you know, to be to be honest, I had I didn't want to let them down. I appreciated their unconditional love so much that I didn't want to let them down. So that's when I started engaging in the the the, the recovery process of like you know getting a sponsor, working the steps, having a look at myself, getting involved in service in the community. You know, like giving away what was given to me. You know, like that sort of stuff. And that's where it started to change. Like, bloody hell, this is good. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. Imagine I can, this might work for me. What a, what a powerful sort of moment for you mm. to be to be shown love in that way. You know, like you said, externally, you're probably looking like you didn't want it, or but mm. internally you were crying out for it. I've always been crying out for it. I'm wired mm. for love and connection from day dot. You know, I was an incubator baby, so I didn't get it. I didn't even know the impact that that had on me, you know, but wow. I didn't get that love and connection when I was just born. I was in an incubator for about six weeks. So I suppose, you know, like all my life, I've been kind of searching for that, but don't know how to receive it. So it's been a long process for, I mean, that might sound a bit woo-woo to some listeners out there, <laughs> but but because like, of the work I've done, it brings you right back and to see the significance that these things play in your life. Absolutely. Um, and, and just so important as well, you know, for, I mean, one of my favourite artists, Damien Dempsey, um, at the end of one of his songs, there's just this refrain that just repeats over and over again, love yourself today. And it's such a powerful message, you know, when you truly grasp that concept of being able to love yourself, um, I think everything changes, doesn't it? It's nothing you know? like it. There's nothing that's even anywhere up there as being able to love yourself you know, unconditionally, you know, and that's, I'd like, I, I mean, I, I don't have that all the time, but, but I have glimpses of that, you know, of like just being able to reassure myself that I am enough, I am loved, I'm lovable. You know, I've been able to kind of give myself over the, the, the last few years. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I certainly feel the same. You're never 100% always loving yourself every moment of every day, but... I, I do I try and remind myself, you know, how can I possibly love someone else if I don't love myself first and foremostly, you know. So you, you've, you've touched on some of the, the, the sort of um, qualities, I guess, that you've developed, Steve, as you, as you kind of started to turn your life around, particularly that one around becoming aware of emotional intelligence and that sort of stuff. But what are the other qualities that you've developed as, a, as someone in recovery, would you say? Well, I suppose that's... Uh that what I find is, is, is that this journey has enabled me to be who I was meant to be. You know, like sometimes we, we look at like people who've come in or, you know, suffer from mental health or, or had any kind of adversity or any struggle in their life and they change and people say, and they changed, you know. Hmm. Um, I, I don't believe that I've changed who I am. I've just been able to be who I am fully, you know, like unconditionally um, without without having to compromise myself, you know, and, and like, and, and that's been a long journey. That's kind of self-acceptance and learning who I am, learning what I like, learning what I don't like. And I suppose uh, only then, when I, when I can start to love myself, I can then start drawing people in that, that love themselves too. You know, like you, you pull in what you see in the world. And, and I suppose like it's given me a new fresh look at the world that it is a beautiful place. I always see in the world as real hostile and everyone's dog eat dog and, and you know, I've got to be competitive in the combat. Do you know what I mean? And, and I felt I, got, I started getting quite good at that. But like to kind of surrender and think actually that isn't the real world. That's just a, the world that, that I ended up in. Um, and it, you know, it, it like, when you start seeing the world as different and you start seeing the innocence and the beauty in others, you start seeing the innocence and the beauty within yourself. And I suppose the, the, the qualities that I had before, like I said, has been, you know, I was always quite entrepreneurial because I come from nothing, always had to graft and hustle to get what I, what I wanted. And I applied that, obviously, you know, in my, in my using, whether I was dealing drugs or, or doing something to make my, my, my money, that I've been able to harness that with, like, now, like, dealing hope to people, you know, that, that when I found recovery, I was that excited about it that like, you know, when I was seeing people struggling, I just wanted to like save everyone. No, I didn't understand it's a process for them as well. But you know, especially when I come back to Birmingham, because there wasn't much going on in regards to recovery in Birmingham. It's like a, 
you know, it's like a needle in a haystack to find people. There, there wasn't many people around. So, so when I came home, I was like, I was on a mission, you know, and, and, you know, that's been a process of my own development about kind of understanding that people have their own journeys. But, you know, I've been on a mission since I've come home, which was like 16, 17 years ago now, 18 years ago to like let everybody know in Birmingham that if or in my local area that if they're using drugs and they don't know there's a way out that they do know it's up to them to it's up to them what they do with that but I want them everyone to know there is a way out and like you know Birmingham is like it's on fire for recovery we've got like 52 meetings a week some meetings like 80 90 people in who have come from you know in and out the criminal justice system in and out the care system you know just you know even in the corporate world that have been stuck in using you know, that so many people have found recovery, not just through me, but through the com a community that I've got involved in, where we're all champions, and we? Like, you know, like, waving the flag, saying you don't have to die alone, like, you don't deserve to live like this. This is what's an offer for you. So powerful. And, you know, really just amazing to hear you speak with such passion about it as well, you know, and such enthusiasm. And, and just to come back to what you mentioned there about Aren't we all taught that that's the way in life to compete, to be competitive, to trample over other people, to get to where you want to get to? And like you say, it's just that, that, that that's not what life is meant to be about as far as I, I can see. Um, and it, it really sounds like when you came back from um, your time in Western, you re you'd really discovered your purpose. Yeah. Is that how you'd frame it? Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, like, I've never been passionate about anything, you know, I was only passionate about dying. I just wanted to die before, I just wanted to get out of my own pain, you know, and um, and when I, when, I, when I did find recovery, I got to about 18 months, I'd got involved in service, like, in Western and, you know, like, helping other people and, you know, like, having that, for the first time in my life, feeling like, actually, I'm quite, I'm of value. Like, people, I've got something to give to people. Um, and I couldn't get enough of it, you know, that, the addictive personality thing. He's like, I love this feeling. <laughs> like, that, you know, I, I love feeling good. I don't want to feel bad. Nothing wrong with that. I want to feel good all of the time. Mm. So, like, this is what makes me feel good, but it also helps others. So, like, that's, I was passionate. I had purpose. I was like, I would do anything. Um, and that's why I set up Changes. Um, it, wasn't it wasn't meant to be what it was at the time. It was just a project that I was setting up to help people so we could get... Because at that time, people were being sent away to like Bournemouth or Brighton or, you know, Western, but they weren't coming home because there was nothing for them to come home to. So that's why I just set up a house so we could get people back. I was training as a counsellor at the time and I thought, you want to help these people get them back into Birmingham and we can help start, you know, creating a space for people to find recovery at home. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Shaping Champions podcast. Thank you again for listening. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Shaping Champions Podcast. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to discuss anything with us, make any suggestions or offer up any guests that you'd like us to interview, please do contact us on any of our social channels or email us on shapingchampions at outlook.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. You kind of embark on that journey and begin to kind of realise that vision. So how do you get from opening that one house to eventually like accessing millions of pounds worth of funding to open up your own building in Digbeth? I mean, what was that journey like, you know, the, the bit in between? Yeah, I mean, it, it was really difficult because, like, at the time, the drug and alcohol strategy was about harm reduction. Now, like, you know, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not against harm reduction because it keeps people alive until they get well. But like, for, that was the only option really available at the time. And I mean, harm reduction is where people have a drug problem that they give them other drugs, you know, like to, to kind of keep them off the street drugs. But, but for me, that that wasn't what I ever wanted. So all I did is create a service that I wish was there for me. So when I, when I start, when I set up uh, it Changes as a community interest company, um, I was like, you know, there was so much like, 
there's so much against me, you know, because like, what I was trying to bring to the table. I remember going to a meeting once with the commissioners and I sent this email to the commissioner in Birmingham at the time and said, you know, a bit green behind me is, look, I've got this thing, I've got this house and we're helping people and we need funding, we can get loads more. And, you know, because we had 100% success rate for the first two years. Wow. No one relapsed, like, you know, they were all getting involved in the community, volunteering and training. We was going to, you know, advocating people at court to get their families back and their kids out of care and stuff like that. It was just amazing. And and I couldn't get a meeting and we ended up just emailing, emailing. Eventually we got a meeting with the commissioner and, and we went into this meeting and he had no, he had no intention of, of funding me at all. You know, and he got me in this meeting and he asked me something about, uh, it was called CR, CRB then, which is kind of like the, you know, the checks. Yeah. I didn't even know what that was. DBS. DBS now, it? but it was yeah. CRB at the mm. time. And because I didn't know what it was, and I kind of stumbled over trying to wing it, pretending I did know what it was. But they, but he had the giggles. The finance manager in there had the giggles. And they just couldn't stop laughing. And I tell you, I, I, was, I was in tears. And I ended up walking out that room just thinking... I'm doing it anyway. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, I thought a bit stronger than that, but I'm just trying to save me language <laughs> for the podcast. But but it, just, it made me more determined that I don't even need their help. Do you know what I mean? And, and like, I'm, I'm going to make it happen uh, anyway. But, you know, when we did settle the constitution and we was looking to write in bids and they were asking about policies and stuff, you know, it was difficult because I was trying to get, you know, speaking to other agencies and can we have your policies? And I didn't understand what all that was. Um, so I had to Google them and find them from Google, and then change people's names. And I did, you know, and that's how that's how I learned to do it, which was which was a long way around. So, but eventually, we, you know, once we started producing the outcomes and we became an asset in the community, then funders and other people, you know, Public Health England were key, you know, to support me at the time and kind of get us on the platform and got got us talking out there, sharing our stories, more people finding recovery. And, and, you know, like I say, it was hard, but it was, it was an amazing journey, really, in, in, you know, in the early days, and still is. But, I mean, you know, I was really protective over it as well. We was talking a little bit about that earlier, you know, like, because I was always scared of someone coming in and taking my idea and leaving me with nothing. Um, so, you know, whenever people wanted uh, to kind of do a similar thing, I was really protective over it, um, just because of fear, really. But then over time as we, we got established and more established within myself and let go of the fear, I, I was happy to kind of share and, you know, help, I've helped loads of organisations set up around the country and shared my policies and my framework and, you know, different ideas and help people do. Because, you know, we, we need these spaces within our communities because addiction belongs to our communities. No matter where they are, you know, we need to get this out there. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Just coming back to that, the first house you opened being 100% successful for two years, what do you think was the key ingredient that, that made that happen? Like, you know, how was that even possible? Yeah, I mean, when I, I look at that, because our success right now is 85%, which is still really good, mm -hmm. you know, but we, we, we're helping a lot more people, you know. Um, but at that time, we only had four people in the house. Now, I had a plumbing business at the time as well. Um, this is before we set up the CIC. And I was coming back on a Monday, like, so I'd be working in Cornwall or, or Essex or something, driving back on the Monday, doing a little group, and then coming back on the Friday and was doing what I was doing one-to-ones with them. And then I got other people doing support work and stuff. I don't know, I just think, like, it's about the dynamics of a group. You know, like, people who come from addiction really kind of gravitate towards others you know it's monkey see monkey do so if, if you've got like you know where you've got um hostels where people are doing what they want and not really abiding by the rules and what you know people are quite vulnerable to that so that they will gravitate and, and follow suit which is i mean for me that's what i've always done i've never been a good boy i've never done i've never followed rules unless i agree with them you know but generally i don't um but like it's important to be around people um who are kind of leading a better life and we're inspiring and that's what happened is we got some people in who've done long-term rehab who were passionate they loved what we were doing they were so grateful like gratitude is a key any you know like a key to anybody in life to be grateful is where joy lives you know is where serenity lives in in gratitude so they were so grateful so when the new kids come in 
you know, they'd be, they'd, they'd be gravitating towards that and, do, and doing what they were doing. So, you know, so that's why we had that. And then when people moved in, then we got more houses and, you know, as, as the need grew, it just kind of grew from there. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that word you use there, gratitude, I do, I do think it's, a, it is, it's definitely an integral part of the recipe, isn't it? I think for anybody that's successful in life, I think there's a level of gratitude um, that they hold and they practice. So really interested to know, Steve, what do you feel is the most valuable lesson you've learned as a business leader, as an entrepreneur, as someone I would consider a visionary? Uh, well, I know it, it's a big question. It's a yeah, broad one. It's a it's a big. I mean, like the, I'll tell you the one thing when when looking back in hindsight is there's lots of challenges being a leader. It's quite lonely being a leader as well. And and I suppose the biggest thing uh, that I've learned to be able to do, which has been a blessing to me, has been able to reach out and allow other people to help me. You know, like being a leader completely on your own. You know, like if you think about where I come from, you know, I was just a useless drug addict. It was just, you know, like trying to scrape together the money to be able to use every day. So, so utilizing those skills is only going to get me so far. And as I've grown up myself and grown within the, you know, within leadership, I have, I've, you know, I've got to know so many people out there that want to help but don't have the opportunity, you know. So, you know, I've got an advisory committee that cover, that's got leaders within certain, you know, businesses. I've got business leaders, I've got marketing leads, I've got finance managers, I've got, you know, uh, policy leads, I've got commissioners, marketing, sales, everything, you know. So, so the skills that I don't have to possess on my own, I've had, to, I've had to like be able to bring those people in to guide and walk on that journey with me. Um, and and so, so, so that's a blessing. The other thing as well is always to, to, to lead by vulnerability. Like vulnerable leadership has been key for me. And what I mean is, is when people hear vulnerability, it's like, oh, I'm all vulnerable. Like, like not, not, not in that way. I mean, like vulnerability as in like just being who, who I am and knowing only what I know. Like in any given situation, I only know what I know. And see, anyone that works for changes, that it's important that they know that they're supported with what they know. You know, they don't have to pretend to me to be something that they're not. They don't have to pretend to have done something that they haven't. If they're struggling, they're able, we created a culture that they're able to go, I just don't know what I'm doing here. I mean, because the reality is most of this, I've been winging it. You know, I've been just chanting it and having a go, doing the best I can with what I've got and where I've been stuck, I've been able to get people in with me. Now, I've had challenges where there's been a few people that have worked internally for me who've tried to tear me down for that. You know, and there's people externally that have tried to tear me down. And, you know, like there's, there's been lots of real dark times in my leadership journey where I've almost give up. Now, and the process of giving up is almost giving up my leadership style of just being vulnerable, vulnerable, you know, being who I really am and then start pretending to be someone I'm not. So I don't get that again. But, it's, but, but I've always like held on to myself enough to like, no, this is who I am and, and, and I'm good enough. Being who I am, I don't have to know everything. I don't have to be everything. You know, I can just, I'm good at what I do um, and, and I'm good at helping other people being the best at who they are as well. Yeah, is there something in there about sort of relinquishing like the mask that we all can yeah. walk around with, you know, oh, oh today I'm going to put the, the Steve Dixon business leader mask on or, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the, whatever it is, you know, the Jimmy Davis, like fun time guy, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's like, once, perhaps once we learn to just, you know, we don't need a mask. Yeah. We're okay. Who's under there, really? Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Get into the real, the mm. real you or, you know, the core of you, mm. whatever it might be. But I think, you know, some really valuable things in what you just said there, you know, particularly that, that sort of message around vulnerability, um, but not in the way that people traditionally think of it. In, I think that's, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Um you mentioned earlier, like some of the sort of trauma-informed work that you've done. So, for anyone out there that's listening, what would you say is the starting point uh, for anyone that's beginning that journey of trying to heal, like deep emotional wounds that hey, perhaps have come as a result of trauma? You mean people who are using, or people who are suffering in, with mental health or any kind in of trauma? In general, yeah, just in general across the board. Maybe if there's one sort of 
you know, this is where it starts or yeah. can you even pinpoint it to one thing or is it a, a collection well, of things that come together? Well, I mean, any journey starts at the beginning and like anyone that has had any any kind of trauma or anything that's happened to them, you know, the first thing I'd want to say to them is it, it wasn't your fault. <clears throat> and and that hits me when I, when I say that because I, I thought it was my fault and... You know, I'd want to say to anyone, it wasn't your fault. And there's a there's a reason you feel the way that you do. And there's hope for you. And, and you're not alone. And like, that has been crucial for the beginning of my journey. Because I felt so alone in the world. You know, I, I despised myself. I felt, you know, because what happened, I felt I was dirty. I thought I was unwanted. I thought it was a mistake. All this stuff. And, you know, and that, you know, that perpetuated my behaviour. That, like, made me, convince me that it's true. I had no one else... You know, or how I was holding all these secrets. It was just, it was like a stain on my soul. I never thought I was going to be able to get rid of it unless I was going to die, you know. But you don't have to die. You know, there's hope for anybody out there. You know, we are all, our behaviour is all the result of the things that have happened to us, all the result of the things that we're seeking in life. And we all deserve love and connection. You know, you do, if you're listening to this, you deserve love and connection no matter what you've done. Or no matter what's happened to you, you deserve it too. Wow, yeah, that was put so beautifully. And, um, you know, it really hit me, Steve, some of the things you were saying there. Um, I just want to sort of touch on addiction in general across society. You know, I get the sense that it permeates our culture. And it's, it's so prevalent whether it's sort of caffeine, sugar, nicotine, pornography, chocolate, you know, whatever it is, drugs, alcohol. Do you think, do you feel like we're in the midst of like an addiction crisis or do you think that that's just part of society, part of culture, part, you know, and and learning to uh, manage those things maybe? I mean, I, I think that as a result of, you know, growing up, like having this kind of pressure put on us that we've got to be someone that we're not. Um, and, you know, learning not to be able to express our emotions and be who we really are. You know, our key ingredients to people learning to, to escape those pressures as an early, you know, in early adulthood or, or childhood um, and I think that it doesn't have to be you know because when, when we think about addiction even me you know like before even when I was using I think of addiction is like these people who were living on the street you know like sticking needles in their eyeballs or, or whatever it is um, you know like they've turned up from Mars and they're just infesting our communities you know like these people are you know the CEOs, like, you know, leaders in, in, in the corporate world, you know, come from all different backgrounds who have been failed by the system. And I mean, failed in a way, not that the system knows any better, but failed in a way where they weren't supported where they're at. Now, there's lots of other illnesses that have lots of money uh, pumped into them and they've got good resources, not enough resources, but they've got good resources to help people get better. And... And I think that, that with addiction is so frowned upon, there's so much stigma around it, where, where the people just, you know, the general community bury their head in the sand because everybody knows somebody who's suffering with addiction and there's so much shame around that. You know, like people blame themselves for their family, that, you know, if they've got their son or their, or their dad or their mum, they have some kind of ownership of it and they don't want to say that. So they just pretend it's not really happening rather than see it as an illness and go, how can we support that person? That doesn't mean give them money to fuel their addiction, but also, you know, put strong boundaries in and guide people in the right way to say, look, there's a way out. You know, give people the opportunity to do that. But where you was talking about, like, there's other ways that addiction can manifest. You know, whether it be shopping, whether it be sex, whether it be gambling, whether it be whatever it is. You know, people who are living, um, you know, what you would see as, as a normal functioning life. There's so many people still escaping their own reality and their own pressures in, in ways where they're compromising themselves. Now, now, look, recovery is available for anyone. It doesn't have to be as bad as that 
for, for, for you to find recovery. Like anyone can, if you've had enough of doing something that you really don't want to do, there's help for you too. You know, like, you know, that there's meetings, there's lots of stuff around in the community where you can be supported to stop that behavior. You know, whether it be, you know, sex, where, you know, like I said earlier, there's so many ways where, where, you know, I can ruin my own life as quickly as I could with drugs without using. Do you know what I mean? With my addiction manifesting in different areas, I can tear my life apart, push people away from me that I love. I can create so much, you know, chaos in my life if I don't change, you know, the, the way that I see the world and the way that I see myself. I know you're pretty good friends with, um, with Russell Brand. Um, you know, you know some former professional footballers. Um, I'm interested, like, with, with all the work that you've done in this field, do you see a, a certain personality type that's more susceptible to addiction? Or, you know, can it just happen to anybody at yeah. any time? I, I, honestly, Jimmy, I don't. I don't see any per, personality type. Mm. You know, I mean, like, th there was one time where I thought, you know, because... In changes at one time, I mean, I've got ADHD. Well, I mean, self-diagnosed. I think I'm pretty sure I've got ADHD because I'm like a hot potato most of the time, um, and like my my concentration isn't very long. Um, different things like that, and and I'm dyslexic as well. So like, where there was loads of people who were employed by us, and loads of people who were in recovery were, were both ADHD and dyslexic. So so we we thought like it's just something about that. Now it doesn't mean that like if you've got ADHD and dyslexia that you're suffering with addiction. But I just think the way that they were looked at at the time, you know, in the 80s and the 90s where we were in education, like if you had ADHD, you was you was a naughty kid. If you was dyslexic, you were thick. You know, and I was I had to stand in the corner or standing outside the headmaster's office for most of my school days, to be honest, because of that. Rather than like now, obviously, you know, it's a bit people are a bit more supportive and there's more support for that. Mm. So, I'm not saying that's the reason for addiction, but I mean that's a reason to make you feel the way you do about yourself, or I did anyway. But you know, but like I know lots of people who are in recovery who are also academics and come from a, a whole you know range. Of, uh, of background and, and, and class as well. You know, like I said earlier, it's an equal opportunity destroyer. But, you know, recovery is an equal opportunity repairer, is a healer, you know, so anyone can find it. I think that's a really, really lovely kind of final message uh, as such. I mean, I do want to ask you one final question, Steve, but um, yeah, if, you know, again, that just feels really powerful that, um, like you mentioned earlier in the conversation, there's all there's hope. There's always hope. You know, what I mean, for anybody um, at whatever stage of their life, finding themselves in whatever position they are. Um, so, I lied. I got two final questions. Um, just interested to know. I mean, we've touched on your sort of purpose and the passion that comes from that. I know you're a keen like runner. You know, you run marathons and they're all cra crazy kind of tough. So do you. And, well, I've, won, I've run one, thanks to you. He's a marathon uh, runner. <laughs> I'm going to call myself that now. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, what, what fuels these kind of, these passions in your life now? You know, I mean, do you sort of, um, is, is there the same level of intensity there with these different things as there was for, no. for your passion to escape the world and use drugs yeah. back in the day? N nah, de okay. de definitely not. I mean, yeah. like... You know, you, you have to be careful. I mean, like, you know, I speak for myself. I'm nearly 20 years in recovery and I still do go to a couple of meetings a week. I'm still involved in the recovery community because I've seen a lot of people that, that kind of fall away from that end up, you know, if I don't take my recovery seriously, I take myself seriously. That's my reality and that's what I've seen with other people who drift away. They forget what they suffer with and end up like getting, you know, like kind of controlling everything, chasing things. They're never content, never happy. And what happens is they end up using again, you know, going back to like quickly, just like that. No matter how many years I've got, just like that, they're back to where they were before they found recovery. And it's harder for them to get back because of the humility required to get what they once got. Um, so, so the... I have to be careful and have to be aware like where my addiction can be kind of playing out, where it is, or what it is I'm running from. And like, and I've been lucky really, since I was nine years in recovery, I've got really involved in, in trauma work, you know, experiential uh, trauma work. 
and um, and it's been like so profound, as profound to me as finding recovery. You know, because you know, just being clean and being in recovery, what I referred to earlier, doesn't change the way that I see myself. It doesn't really heal the pain inside of me. It just gives me a purpose and a passion and a reason to be alive. You know, and it took me a long time, and I've been in trauma therapy for for a long time. And and I say, look, you know, it was hard in the beginning, and it is difficult to to go through that and to revisit my own pain. But it was essential for me to heal my own pain. And the reason that I'm putting that into that question that you asked is, like, through doing that, you know, like when I'm thinking about that, I, I'm not running away from my pain as much. So I'm able to find things that I like that I don't get obsessed about. You know. It's talking about the marathons, is that I like to keep myself fit. I like to run marathons sometimes. I mean, I say that, I don't like running. I don't like putting my trainers on and doing a 20 mile run. I don't like it, but I do like it when I'm doing it. You know, when I've got to like seven miles like I've done with you. You know, when we get to that stage and you're in the groove and you're enjoying yourself and you're like noticing the, the beauty around you and stuff like that, all your thoughts have come and all your thoughts have gone. It's quite meditative. Um, and that achievement at the end, and I feel, I feel good about myself, but I'm not like putting my trains on, run, 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 run obsessively, or going to the gym, or, or gambling, or whatever it is, to escape my pain, you know, it's really dissipated. That voice that was so loud in my ear that told me that I was a piece of shit and no one likes me, no one loves me, you know, you, you don't deserve love and all that, you know, that's still there, but it's like a little whisper. Now, it's not in charge of my life anymore. You know, I'm in charge of my life. I can hear it, I can observe it as a third party and go, I hear you, but this is what I'm doing with my life. So I don't feel the need to escape that so much. So beautifully put. And something very profound in what you've just said about being able to face our pain, sit with it, accept it, mm. challenge it, um, go on a journey with it recover from it you know mm. all of those things I think that anyone listening can can take a lot from that and um, you know it, it, like you, you mentioned the word earlier in the conversation as well courageous you know mm. it, it, it takes a lot of courage doesn't it to do that mm. to, to, to face up to to that internal battle and challenge but um, yeah. everyone can do it you know it's Absolutely. possible isn't it yeah and they need to do it I just want to add to that as well is that like you know what I believed about myself wasn't true. Mm. It's important to point that out. Mm. You know, I could tell the story, the things that happened to myself, and people could say, oh, that wasn't your fault, you were a good man. You know, that they meant what they were saying. But for me to embody that, like really believe it internally myself, I had to go back there to see, like, reclaim my own innocence. You know, we're all born into the world innocence. You know, when you see a little kid running around with their hands out, their eyes wide open, like, the world's, a, it's just magic, it's, the world's a mystery. The things haven't happened to them. You know, like, to reclaim that, to, I had to go and see myself as that child, I had to relate that to the age of my own kids and see if that happened to them, would they be innocent? You know, to realize that it wasn't my fault. You know, and from that, like, what I believed about myself all these years, I've been believing a lie you know so it's, it was essential for me to do that and I just want to kind of put that out there he's like if you believe you know if you're at the end of your life and you think you don't want to be here anymore you know you're hating who you are like but that stuff that you believe in about yourself isn't true mm. yeah absolutely it's not true and it's not your fault mm. but where you go from here on is your responsibility that's right isn't it yeah, yeah. and um, there's hope you can yeah there's hope you can reclaim yourself, as you said. You can mm. take that, that power into your own hands, um, step into your fire and become the, the beautiful person that you were meant Absolutely. to. It's a fantastic message to, to finish things off. Thanks ever so much for your time, Steve, today. Thanks, really appreciate you being on the podcast. And don't forget, all listeners out there, or if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, please do subscribe to us. Please do follow us on all the social platforms at the Shaping Champions podcast, and we look forward to seeing you for the next episode.